Get 12 issues of The Spectator for just £12 when you subscribe this Christmas, and you can get a free bottle of Tattinger champagne. Just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash celebrate. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots and Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by Fraser Nelson and James Forsyth. Overnight, Boris Johnson's beleaguered government has been shook by the news that David Frost has quit. The Brexit minister has attended his resignation. He hasn't been on camera this morning yet to talk about it, but he did give a speech a few weeks ago, which gave quite a clear hint about his views on the current direction of government. If after Brexit all we do is import the European social model, we will not succeed. We know what the formula for success as a country is. It's low taxes. I agree with the Chancellor, as he said in his budget speech, our goal must be to reduce taxes. It's about light-touch, proportionate regulation, whatever the policy objectives you're trying to pursue. And, of course, free trade. Increasing consumer choice while reducing consumer costs. Ensuring that competition stops complacency. Keeping our economy fit and responsive to innovation and progress abroad and personal freedom and responsibility. Unavoidably, we've had a lot of state direction and control during the pandemic. That cannot and must not last forever. Frost resignation comes as there's increased speculation and reports um, and word from government that new restrictions could be coming within hours. Fraser, is this a crisis point for Boris Johnson? Yes, he is in crisis, one that gets deeper every day, it seems. You wouldn't think he could have a much worse day than Friday, where uh, he lost North Shropshire in a massive by-election defeat, one of the biggest for 60 years. But I've had two senior Conservatives call me in the last couple of hours, both saying the same thing, that David Frost's resignation is a bigger deal, a bigger blow for the Prime Minister than the by-election. By-elections can come and go, but this is somebody who Boris Johnson personally took into government, took into the House of Lords, made him Brexit minister in his cabinet. And he would tell people that the great thing about Frosty, as everybody calls him, is that you can't put a cigarette paper between me and Frosty. That's what Boris would say. We're so close, we're so aligned, so he always completely speaks with my voice. Well, that is why it is so, so significant that David Frost is leaving, not because he's frustrated with the Brexit process, but because he's concerned about the political direction of the government. Now, in that um, clip there, we heard... Um, examples of what his concern. He thinks that uh, what's the point of leaving the European Union if Britain is going to become a high-tax, high-regulation uh, country more like the EU? We should be using these freedoms to diverge and become different, not becoming the same. And also, for him, there was something fundamentally British about the fact that we didn't have vaccine passports. There were a great many MPs, almost 100 Tories, rebelled against them on Tuesday, not because of the practical burden they pose, but because of what it says about British democracy, that we are not a country where the citizen needs permission from the government to go certain places at certain times. That has now changed with a vaccine passports uh, bill voted through on Labour votes. For David Frost, it seems, that was the last straw. So Boris Johnson's closest ally, the guy who was absolutely aligned with him or had been on politics, has now quit because of political differences and because of what many see as Boris Johnson's lurch towards big state conservatism. 
James, let's break down the reasons that Frost has resigned because I think one of the things that can be a bit confusing is one thing as Fraser talks about is vaccine passports. We know he was against those. We've also still got conversations going on Article 16 and the Northern Ireland Protocol. What do you think is the most significant motivating factor for David Frost? I I think the biggest factor for David Frost is his feeling that the opportunities of Brexit were not being seized. That that clip you just played, he has been clear for months in private and, and increasingly if you and increasingly open about this, you know, saying it in the CPS speech and the like, that Brexit could not work if the UK simply left the single market and the customs union, but carried on as before and kind of raise taxes. He was one of the three cabinet ministers to speak out about the national insurance increase to put more money into health and social care. So I think that is the biggest reason why he is going. I think that there's obviously the COVID factor as well. It's worth remembering that in his big Lisbon speech, talking about what the UK wanted in Article 16, he set out as a philosophical point of difference between the UK and the EU the attitude to COVID restrictions, saying that the, the UK's, uh, the fact that the UK had opened up comprehensively over the summer, particularly England, where, where, the, where the government's writ runs in total, was a sign of, of how Britain would be different from the EU. And so I, I think those are the most important factors. I think what you cannot get around is what a body blow this is to Boris Johnson, because David Frost was seen by Boris Johnson used David Frost as a, as a reassurance to that those Brexiteers who propelled him into number 10. He said, look, don't think I'm going soft. I've got, I've got David Frost negotiating with the EU. He's taking this hard line on Article 16 and everything else. And, you know, Frost is proof that, that, that we're going to have a kind of global Britain and a successful Brexit. For David Frost to go, he is undermining one of the key pillars of Boris Johnson's premiership. And however polite the letters are, David Frost has also chosen to go at the moment of Boris Johnson's maximum vulnerability in his premiership to date. He has had a terrible month. He has just lost a safe Brexit voting seat. And for David Frost to walk out and all the reasons he is citing, high taxes, Covid passes, net zero, punch every vulnerability that Boris Johnson has with the Tory activist base. Fraser, we've already seen a little bit of kickback from the parliamentary party over this. There have been um, in the Tory WhatsApp group, or one of the groups, which is a pro-Brexiteer um, offshoot, uh, Nadine Doris has ultimately been removed by the group by Steve Baker. That decision has been applauded by people like Andrew Bridgen after she tried to defend Boris Johnson and suggested that everyone should show some loyalty for delivering Brexit. So is that a sign of how David Frost's resignation is planting further seeds of doubt into an already disgruntled Tory party into what Boris Johnson really does for them? But it also makes you think, really, is that the extent of his communication with his backbenchers. Is that all they're hearing right now? This is the best case Boris Johnson can make for himself. Nadine Doris saying, look, he got you an 83-strong majority a couple of years ago. They're all fully aware of that. What they don't know is where he's heading, or rather what they do know is that he's heading in the wrong direction, and the direction they are not inclined to indulge him with. And a lot of them are thinking, well, maybe best get rid of him now before he goes too far down this direction. What he should be doing is sending out somebody to say to Steve Baker and all of these guys, look, guys, you're getting it all wrong. This is just a, this is a freak, a COVID blip. As soon as the pandemic's back over, we're going to get back towards um, doing what we promised. We're going to be cutting taxes, etc. 
Nobody is making the case for keeping Boris Johnson right now. And I think that will start to matter more than we might think. James, it does feel as though things are moving rather quickly against Boris Johnson from already a, a bad situation, if you think about North Shropshire on Friday. But things could get worse still when it comes to the parliamentary party opinion of Boris Johnson, because we're hearing more and more about potential restrictions. Um, they're fair, fairly bleak sage notes um, talking about a return to stage one, stage two of the original lockdown, um, which you see either hospitality closed or only outdoor service. And also um, there are reports that we could be heading to a two-week circuit breaker after Christmas. Some are now saying that's not soon enough, we need to actually just cancel Christmas. How, how quickly do you think the government could move on this? I, I, I would say watch this space. I mean, Sajid Javid has just been on Andrew Marr saying that he can't rule out more restrictions coming in before Christmas. I, I, I think what is so what makes the situation so vulnerable for the government is the whole... If you think back to, to the Hartlepool by-election, which was, I think, the zenith of this government's political prospects, it, it was this idea that the vaccines meant that the country was never having to go through this again. And if in a country where you've got high vaccination rates, where an ever-increasing percentage of the adult population have had their booster shots, and we are still getting into a situation where you shut down entire industries then I think we are we are into a new era because what you are essentially saying is that every time a new variant comes along, we will have to do this until we have ascertained how dangerous that, that variant is. And that obviously has massive implications for the society, for society and the economy. And, and I think lots of MPs would, would be very unhappy about that. Now, remember that as part of that... Covid passes vote. Boris Johnson promised to recall Parliament if any more restrictions were going to be implemented. And I think if you saw a return to kind of what you were describing, Katie, sound a lot to me like kind of tier two last time round. You know, rule of six, um, no indoor hospitality, no indoor household mixing. I think you would see a, a very considerable Tory rebellion there. I think the issue that where the rebellion would be biggest would be if schools were to be shut again. I think that 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 would be another. The problem for Boris Johnson is, as David Frost says in his letter, that the opening up was meant to be irreversible. That it was meant to be kind of you know we meant to have this cautious roadmap over the uh, over the summer to to create an irreversible reopening of economy of the economy and society, and, and the fact that it is quite clearly not that not irreversible is what is causing Boris Johnson the problem. And now, I think if, if this was the only issue he was facing, he would be able to explain, as Fraser said, that, you know, this is a COVID blip. But the fact is, it is coming on top of other Tory unhappiness. That, I think, is what is making the situation so difficult for him. Fraser, ministers were very downbeat after they were given a data analysis yesterday from Sage, um, of what Sage was seeing there. So I wondered, first, have you been writing about the various scenarios being modelled and have spotted something that looks uh, questionable? And secondly, do you think any of these ministers are actually going to stand up to Boris Johnson? Because privately they will say things like, you know, things have to stay advisory, we can't have outright bans. I wonder whether Frost could be one of a few to say... No, you need to start listening to us. Well, that's certainly right. As James was saying earlier, David Frost was one of three cabinet members to oppose the tax rises, the other two being Liz Truss and Jacob Rees-Mogg. 
And, and right now, if you wanted somebody who would try to rein in the Prime Minister, you would call on David Frost and say, look, you've got to stop this Frosty. And he probably would try to do it. And the Prime Minister would listen to him. Now that even he has given up, then who do they call if they say, look, as by the way, some are doing now, Michael Gove is pushing for lockdown again in these meetings. You've got to resist him. You, you, you can't trust the figures you're being shown. What do you do? Now, we, we actually you mentioned those, the sage um, scenarios, Katie, and I think it's probably worth talking about them for a while because they also dropped last night. Now, there are three scenarios they're proposing. One is that we continue with Plan B, and that will lead to anything between 600 and 6,000 deaths a day, according to SAGE. Now, that is a staggering range. I mean, that is, in other words, the NHS could handle 600 deaths a day. The NHS would be crushed if there were anything like 6,000 deaths a day. So a range there, and we're giving absolutely no indication what they think is most likely within that range. Uh, then again, the, so the, the scenario B is that we tighten up equivalent to step two of the roadmap, so that's semi-lockdown, and then there's full lockdown. Step one, and the full lockdown would still mean up to 2,000 deaths a day, apparently, or, or as little as 200, depending on, on how the dice rolls. Now, what nobody has been able to explain this is why Stage has stopped saying what it thinks is the most likely scenario. These could be scenarios literally plucked out of the air, with no probability attached to them at all. Uh, yesterday I spent, um, while I was writing Christmas cards, I spent a while on time talking to the, uh, the chairman of the Sage Modelling Committee, Professor Gray Medley, on Twitter, trying to ask him why he'd left out of his calculations quite a mild scenario. And we're in a fascinating situation now where the banks, the actual equity analysis banks, are coming out with their own Omicron analysis because the markets want to know what's likely to happen, but the politicians only seem to be told or telling us about worst-case scenarios. So the banks are saying, hang on a minute, let's look at South Africa, let's look at the very lower hospitalisation rate, if this means that Omicron is milder, then Omicron would only mean hospitalizations at a third of a January peak without any need for restrictions or lockdown. Now, this scenario was pushed out by JP Morgan. Why isn't it being pushed out by Sage? Why aren't any of the modelers doing it? That's what I wanted to know, and that's why I asked the, um, Professor Medley. And he responded rather cryptically that he only comes up with scenarios that politicians could act upon which sounded to me as if he was saying that well, he's only being asked for scenarios that would involve some kind of lockdown. So again, if we're about to lock down the country or not, based on expert advice, based on scientific advice, I think the public and the government have got a right to know what is the quality of its advice. Are these people telling us what they think is going to happen, or is it just a scenario plucked out of the air? And I can't really understand why this SAGE document does not tell us what SAGE thinks is the most likely thing to happen. I don't see how ministers can make good decisions based on that dismal quality of information. So if they do want to lock us down, I think they're going to have to make a far better case for it than that which they've presented via the SAGE data so far. And just finally, James, Sajid Javid this morning has spoken about how Parliament will get a say before any new restrictions are imposed. Does that suggest um, the choreography of this be something like an announcement by the government saying they plan to do something and then Parliament being recalled before it was put into action? Yes, I, I think it is likely that you would see the government saying what it wanted to do and announcing it was recalling Parliament at the same time. 
So th those who were on the cabinet call yesterday say that Witty and uh, Valance are very concerned and also saying that they don't seem convinced by the... Uh, they, they, they think there are lots of... I mean, Chris Whitty has said this in public as well. There are lots of reasons why the relatively benign scenario that is playing out in South Africa might not play out here. But I think what we are seeing, though, is this question, which is if the precedent that will be set if more restrictions are imposed is essentially saying that when a variant of concern comes along, you will have to impose restrictions until the scientists have had time to make an assessment. That, that has very, very profound implications for the economy and society. And I, and I think it will be, I mean, I think there will be resistance, considerable resistance to that in the cabinet, let alone in the, in the Tory parliamentary party. And I think this is the problem for Boris Johnson. He, he, he finds himself having to make one of the most difficult decisions of his premiership at a time when his political capital has never been lower since his election victory two years ago. For what it's worth, I've been picking up that Boris has been rejecting calls for lockdown so far. There was a COVID meeting where he was basically um, slapping down Michael Gove when Gove was calling for greater lockdown measures. So it doesn't seem to me as if the Prime Minister is pushing for this. But I do think that all eyes are on Sajid Javid right now. He came on as Health Secretary saying that he would do things in a fundamentally different way to Matt Hancock. Gone would be the scary worst-case scenarios. He would be using his financial trader's eye to look at the data objectively and impartially. But the way he's going about this now, pushing through vaccine passports, for example, without being able to explain a single way in which they would help the pandemic, looks an awful like the old system. Also, the way that he's doing it, again, we're, we're, giving, we're giving this cryptic sage dump, which uh, has lots of scary scenarios, but nobody really trying to explain why they might be plausible. That's exactly what happened a year ago. If, if anything, uh, I actually had, I was talking to somebody who was involved in the first lockdown, and they were saying in the first lockdown, at least Sage told you what scenario they thought was likely, what di they didn't. Now they've stopped doing that. So if we are to go into another lockdown in an even more chaotic and even less evidence-based way that we went into the first lockdown, I think that starts to do Sajid Javid some serious political harm as well. And he is, of course, somebody who you put in the running if Boris Johnson were to go. So I think a lot is at stake here for more people's political reputations than simply Boris Johnson's. Thank you, Fraser. Thank you, James. And thank you for listening.